So the other day I read a fascinating article um, called The Complete Glossary of Facebook's 51 Gender Options. So when you sign up for Facebook, and maybe you know this already, I'm late to the party, what else is new? So when you sign up for Facebook, there's a section called About You, and then, you know, what follows is a category uh, titled Gender, and there's three major headings, okay? Uh, There's male, there's female, and then there's custom, okay? I'm not making this up. Male, female, and custom. Now, the first two are self-explanatory, but then there's this custom. Well, what's that about? Well, that's what this article kind of attempts to explain. Facebook has provided at least 50 different gender identities for their users to choose. Okay? So, you know, so now there's not just male and female. All right? Let me just, just run down a Let's do a quick flyby of what some of these are, okay? So there's, there's male, there's female, there's androgynous, there's trans male, there's trans man, there's trans female, there's trans woman, there's trans masculine, trans feminine, there's, there's, a, 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 there, there's a category and with, prefixed, with the prefix cis, cis male, cis female, cis man, cis woman, uh, there's, then there's gender fluid, gender nonconforming, gender questioning, gender variant, there's pangender, there's transgender, there's other. There's neither. And then there's two-spirit. There's two-spirit. Okay? And, the, and there's much, 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 much more. All right? Now, now I would tell you what these um, definitions mean, but according to the article, these terms are, in the article's terms, dynamic. Which means... I take it, these definitions can change. And I'm not sure who gets to make that call. Okay? Really interesting. The article led with an image of a silhouette with question marks suggesting to me two thoughts. Okay? Thought number one, we're constantly searching for our own identity. We're constantly searching and, and the second thought is we're more confused than ever. All right. Um, so today we're beginning this series on identity. And over the next uh, several weeks, actually, between now and Thanksgiving, um, I, I, I want to answer some questions like, who am I? What's my identity? Uh, And not just who am I, who are we? What is our identity? What's the identity of our church community? All right? And then I want to answer the question this morning that I think is so very relevant to this entire discussion. And if we don't come to terms about this one question, then everything else that I have to say is really not going to make much sense. Okay? So we can talk about the question, who am I? We can talk about the question, who are we? We can have that discussion. Um, but 
here is the one question that I want to preface any discussion that we have about these questions, and it's simply this. Who is best qualified to tell me who I am? Who is most accredited? Who's the authority? Okay, who's the authority? Now, so much of our questions about identity and self-image almost gloss over that very important question. And so I just want to encourage us as a church family, we really need to make peace with that issue. Who is best qualified to tell me who I am? This is a relevant subject, don't you think? I mean, we Americans, we wrestle with identity. We're on a quest to find ourselves, a quest to discover who we are, to determine our identity, and that's good. Truth be told, though, the quest is more than a quest. It's a conquest. Because we Americans actually want sovereignty over our identity. We assert the right to self-determination and self-definition and self-identity. We want to identify ourselves on our terms as we see fit. And so... We go to those places that we feel will give us that. That will give us that sense of peace or that sense of purpose that we so desire. And yes, sexuality is one of those places. But it's not the only one. There are other places where we go for the answer to the question, who am I? And let's just cover a few of these places before we turn to Psalm 139. Um, some of us seek our identity in what I would call our vocational achievements. We go to work to find our significance. Now, we've talked all about uh, I Heart Champagne Urbana, I Heart CU, and using our place of uh, work as a vocation, as a calling to express the love of Christ. And, and, and this, that's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. But here's what I'm learning. And let me just talk about it in terms of my world. Ministry is a wonderful calling, but a lousy identity. You see the difference? Ministry is a wonderful place where I can serve God and use the gifts God has given me, but ministry is a terrible place to get my source of significance. You see, ministry turns from calling to identity when I feel like I'm only as good as my last sermon, or where I, only, I feel like I'm only as, as, as significant as last week's attendance. Yes, we want to grow. Yes, we want to reach out. Yes, we want to contagiously influence our world for Christ. Yes, but when my mood and my heart and my sense of worth are attached to ministry success, then inevitably I'm going to begin expecting you, the congregation, to do for me what only Jesus can do. 
And Windsor Road Christian Church is a wonderful, wonderful flock and a lousy Messiah for Randy. <laughs> See? Ministry, someone, some, uh, one of my mentors once said to me, Randy, ministry was never meant to give you peace of heart. Only Jesus can do that. Now, that's true in my world. What about your world? Where you work, the people you interact with, your job. Are you expecting your job to do for you what only Jesus can do for you? And you say, well, but in my world, I am only as good as my last sermon. Yeah, but do you believe that? You see, see, that the, your biggest challenges are not outside of your heart. Your biggest challenges are inside your heart. And what you see. I am my job. Well, that's where some people look. And then other people look to their stuff, right? I am my stuff. And we've heard this, we've heard this, we've heard this. And yet, oh my goodness. It is so easy. It's so easy to fall into this. And, you know, because our stuff is kind of, you know, it, it, our stuff is kind of a public way of, of projecting the desired image that we have. And, and, you know, whether they're vehicles or wardrobes or technologies or homes or jewelry or furniture. And we talk about it and talk about it and talk about it, but then to actually experience it, wow, it's another thing. I want to show you a picture. Look at this picture. That is one cool car. Sarah and I went on a road trip this summer in our time away from you. And so, so I got in this beautiful, beautiful vehicle. I mean, sunny day, got the top down. The stereo was like, I could plug my phone into it and talk to people and all that. I mean, I got in that car and it's like I became a different person. You know? Keep that up there for a little while. <laughs> I just felt better. I felt stronger. And then I began to notice that other people were noticing. That was really cool. It was. And then I began to fantasize about what they must be thinking of me. Things like, wow, what a success. What a dude. What a shrewd, business savvy type of guy who's rich enough to have one of these during the summertime. I wish I were him. I'm confident that's what they were thinking. They could not possibly have been thinking that the reason why I was driving this was because when I went to the rental place, the plain Jane Toyota Corolla that I had actually reserved was not there. And so in the interest of good customer service, the guy let me have this one for the same price. And that it was just a total fluke. But boy, it was a lovely fluke. 
And you know, Monday at noon turned back into a pumpkin. (laughs) But isn't that fascinating how stuff can just kind of get its tentacles in us? I mean, it's one thing to talk about it and read about it, but man, I mean, you know, I mean, now when I look at the classifieds, I'm just wondering, is there a Ford Mustang in there for me, God? You know, so far, heaven has been silent on that one. Anyway, it's, it's, see, they're fun to drive, and they're, but they're lousy sources of But then here's an even sneakier place where people go for identity. And it's, this is a tough one. Some of us find our identity in our family relationships. Some seek identity with family members, children, spouses, parents. In other words, our identity, our, our sense of self-worth, our self-image, they're attached to them, Okay? Of course, God calls us to love and to cherish our family. Absolutely, no argument there. But when their successes become our successes, and when we find ourselves living vicariously through them, and when we need them, need them to succeed as we define success, in order to feel good about ourselves, We become smothering, domineering, and obsessive. Uh, Paul David Tripp is one of my favorite authors, and he once wrote these words. God did not give us children so that we could place them like trophies on the mantle of our identity. And even marriage can be a place where, you know, we can try to find our identity And, you know, of course we are to love our spouses. Of course. Marriage is meant to display the love of Christ. But if you live for your spouse's next shot of acceptance and appreciation, if your spouse's love is solely what makes you alive, if you seek your identity from your marriage instead of letting your marriage identify Jesus Christ, then you are going to turn your spouse into your own personal Messiah. Delivering you from loneliness, delivering you from your discontentment, delivering you from your dysfunctional family of origin, delivering you from you fill in the blank. And when that happens, then, you know, you're going to feel alive when they pay attention and your joy is going to crash and burn when you feel ignored. And here's the deal with this. No sinner alive can be your personal Messiah. There's there's not a sinner alive who can be your solid rock. There's not a sinner alive who can be the reason for the hope that you have. And there's not a sinner alive who's going to love you perfectly. And when we stake our identity on these family relationships... You know what we find about ourselves? We find that we do not love them for their sake. We love them for our sake. See? Hmm. 
job stuff, family. I'll just mention one more, and it's one that I struggle with. It's, um, it's, it's an elder brother personal righteousness. What do you mean by that? Elder brother, the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son who was a legalist and who was so impressed with himself and then expected that to be the reason why his father blessed him just instead of his father's love. Look, church attendance and moral behavior and acts of charity and ministry activities, all of these are good things, necessary things, but they can turn on us when they become our source of identity because when I stake my identity on my personal righteousness, well, then if I'm doing well, I'm going to naturally become proud and arrogant and condescending on everybody else who's not meeting my expectations and standards. And then on the other hand, You know, if I'm not doing well, if I'm slipping up, if I'm making mistakes, then I'm going to be crushed and weighted with guilt. What a mess. What a mess. Vocational achievements, material possessions, family relations, personal righteousness. Job, stuff, family, elder brother stuff. What, now what do these four have in common? You know what they have in common? They're all grounded in creation. They're all the stuff of earth. They're all horizontal. And when you seek your identity in the created world, when you seek your identity horizontally, you're going to get confused. You will. Identity confusion occurs when we seek to Identify ourselves horizontally instead of vertically. When we seek identity from below instead of from above. When we seek identity in creation rather than from our creator, then we're going to get confused. But here's the deal. If you're going to leave a horizontal-based identity program and go vertical then you're going to have to make peace with the question that I've talked about earlier. And that's this. You're going to have to make peace with the truth that there is someone who is more qualified than you to tell you who you are. That there's someone more qualified than your feelings to tell you who you are. Amen. Well, and that's where Psalm 139 comes in. Because Psalm 139 asserts that the most qualified person is God. Uh, John Calvin, from centuries ago, has a great quote. There is no knowing that does not begin with knowing God. There's no knowing that does not begin with knowing God. And Psalm 139 says that you will know who you are when you know the one who knows you best. That is to say, you will find your identity when you find refuge in God. When God is properly ordered in your life, when we're worshiping and celebrating who he is, that's how we can truly know ourselves. And the answer is not, well, it's got to change my job. The answer is not, well, I got to get more stuff. The answer is not, I got to fix my spouse. The, that's not the answer. The answer, is wor- the answer is, who are you worshiping? Who are you celebrating most? And Psalm 139 says this is a vertical 
issue. God is the most qualified person to tell me who I am. Psalm 139. You know me. You're with me. You made me. Verses 1 through 6. God, you know me. You know me. David could have stopped there, but he didn't. He's a poet. Oh, God, there's nothing about me that's unknown to you. You, you know your, your knowledge about me is vast and complete. You know when I rise. You know when I sit. You know when I'm near. You know when I'm far. You know my motives. You know my heart. You know my secret thoughts. You know why I'm a minister. You know why I get up here and speak on Sundays. You know why. You know my fears. You know it all. God, when God comes over to my house, he doesn't have to take a peek in my medicine cabinet because he already knows what's there. He knows me. And the point is, you listen, you never have to explain yourself to your heavenly father. He already understands. He not only knows you, but he understands you. And you don't have to pretend. You don't have to put on a mask. So many of us walk around wondering, wearing these um, false identities like masks. And God says, you don't need that mask around me. Why do we wear that mask? Because we are afraid of what people are going to see when we take off the last mask. And they see our face, warts and all. And God says, I've seen you, warts and all. I love you, warts and all. See, the thing that's behind our quest for identity is a search for significance. And the search for significance is a search for acceptance. And the search for acceptance is our need for love. We want to be loved. And at the end of the day, male, female, custom, father, son, mother, daughter, married, single, divorced, we want someone to look us in the eye and tell us sincerely and authentically, I love you. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. God is love. And the God of Psalm 139 is the God of love who loves me and who knows me and who's with me all of the time. Verses 7 through 12. Where can I go from your presence? David says, you just, I, I can't flee if, if Verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, what's that? Well, the wings of the morning, that's poetry for sunrise, the east. And what's the depths of the sea? Well, from Israel's perspective, the sea is always to the west. So from the east to the west, I gotta, it's impossible to get away from God. When you got up this morning, he was with you this morning. When you drove to church here, he was in the car with you. He's here right now in this room. Our elders will be up here praying at the end of our service. God will be with them here with any who pray out in the foyer, I'll be in the fireside room. When you're at lunch today, he'll be at the table. When you're running errands this afternoon, he's still around. When you're at home tonight, he's there. He's in the room. He won't leave. He's sitting in that rocking chair watching over you. He doesn't need sleep. We do. He's sovereign. We're not. You never live out your identity out of the presence of a loving God. 
you're with me. And, and, and David's tone is like, I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you never leave me alone. You, you know me. You're with me. And then here's what most qualifies God. David says in verses 13 through 18, you made me. You made me. You created me. Your, your eyes saw me. Your hands formed me. Your fingers knitted me. God is sovereign over me, not me. Think about it. Let's just, let's, just, let's just think about this. Think about how little sovereignty you have over your body. Really. Did you choose to be born? Did you choose to be male or female? Did you choose the shape of your own body? Can you keep your body from aging? Joints from decaying? Hairline from receding? Can you deny germs or viruses the right of entry into your body? Truth is, we're not sovereign. We're slaves. Whose impulses am I obeying when I have to interrupt my work schedule to go to a doctor's appointment who then gives me prescriptions with directions I have to follow? Take this with food. Now, don't take this with any food. Take this in the morning. But this one works at night. If we have so much sovereignty over our bodies, why do short people wish they were taller? Taller people wish, I think they were too tall. Intellectuals wish they were more athletic. Mechanicals wish they could sing. Singers wish they could fix up flat. The serious ones wish they could tell a joke. The jokesters wish they, they could be taken seriously. We're not sovereign. But the color of my eyes, the shape of my body, the, my intellectual and physical gifts, my hair, my voice, my personality, the color of my skin, my flat feet, all are hardwired by God's glorious creative ability. And he knows you and he made you. And you know what? He has, the biography of your life was already written before you were born. Verse 16 in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So, so my job is not to write my own story. My job is to live within God's story. God's most qualified. You, you know me. You're with me. You made me. And David lived in a world where people had lost their identity. And that lost identity shows up in verses 19 through 22. This nice, serene praise worship just kind of becomes an outburst, doesn't it, in these verses? Right? They speak against you. They take your name in vain. They're against you. They're living out broken identities. Someone once said that the desire for an identity which God has forbidden is a reflection of how sin has distorted us, not how God has made us. But notice then what David does here. Before he jumps on his high horse, listen to what he does. Verses 23 and 24. He says, you know what, God? I'm just like my enemies. I'm broken. I'm distorted. 
before you deal with them, would you just deal with me? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Listen, you are most patient and most kind and most gracious when you are aware that there is no truth that you could give to another that you don't desperately need yourself. David says, God, do your work and start with me. And God has done his work. God is doing his work. You see, the Bible is an identity story. The story of identity discovered, the story of identity lost, the story of identity restored. Our spiritual parents, Adam and Eve, were given an identity by God. And they were to rule the earth as monarchs. They were to represent God as priests in the temple garden of Eden. They were to fill the earth with the word of God. Their identity was that of representing God, ruling for God, speaking on behalf of God. Their identities were assigned by God, prophet, priest, king. But instead of exercising their God-given identities, they sought their own identities in rebellion and therefore lost their identities. But God was not done. He sent his one and only son whom he identified at his son's baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So God moves first. God says, I'm identifying my son. And remember what happened just after that? Satan shows up with the temptation. So God always moves first and Satan comes in with lies. That's his M.O. This is my beloved son who came to seek and save the lost. And Christianity says that our sovereign God is not just our creator, but our savior. He is a savior because we are sinners. And worshiping God as savior means that the most significant drama in my life is not going to be what happens in my marriage or what happens to my children or to my possessions or my job or my career. The most significant thing in my life is what's going to happen to my sin. It means that the most wonderful thing that could happen to my life is to be rescued and delivered and redeemed and brought into God's kingdom. The most wonderful identity that I can have is not boss or pastor or husband or vice president or father or friend, but child of God. Child of God. And in Christ... Our Heavenly Father says you are not your past. You're not your divorce. You're not your abortion. You're not your job. You're not your PhD. You're not your church. You're not your corner office. You're not your hobby. You're not your Ford Mustang. You're not your children's opinions of you. You're not. You are a creature made by Christ. You are declared righteous because of Christ. You are adopted into God's family through Christ. You are a saint dedicated to Christ. The word saint means holy one. And we are holy because Christ is growing us into the people that he wants us to be. We are a servant. We are dependent on Christ. And we are being made complete by Christ. Listen, that's just not true of us individually. It's true of us as a church family. Now, what if we walked out of these doors totally and absolutely convinced that the most qualified person 
in the universe is the one who says, you are my child, you are my family, I love you, I sent my son for you. Now, I want you to fulfill the identities that I have assigned for you. I want you to go out and lead as servants. I want you to go out and mediate my presence as priests. I want you to go out and speak truth as prophets. Prophet, priest, king. Not of my kingdom, but God's kingdom. Now, church family, that's who you are. Amen.